If you would turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 37, Isaiah 37, and just to kind of bring us back up to date, because two weeks ago we left off in this chapter, Judah, which is the southern kingdom, has King Hezekiah as their king, and the king of Assyria, um, Sennacherib, no, it's not Sennacherib, what's his name? I, I remember his servant, Rabshakeh, but I, uh, king of Assyria, I'm looking to see if I see it easily. So, pardon me? Sennacherib is right. Okay, I had one of those mental blocks where I was like, it sounds right, but it doesn't sound totally right. So Sennacherib is coming and he sends his merry men, basically his you know, pawns and, and different you know, officials. And they basically are badgering and threatening Hezekiah. And they came and... What I thought was interesting when we first started this section was the first confrontation where the two sides met was the exact same location where Isaiah confronted Ahaz back in chapter 7. And here Hezekiah is Ahaz's son and it's like God is saying to him, you get to fish out of the same pond that your, your father did and let's see if you can get it right. And he does. He trusts God. And what we covered last week um, was, the or two weeks ago, was what does God think of Hezekiah? And I have him on the screen. God's assessment of Hezekiah was he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And if you compare that to Judges... Judges said, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Big, big difference there. Um, and so Hezekiah is a good king. He's one that loves the Lord and did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But the second bullet on the, on the sheet there is the one that I would hope we would aspire to be like King Hezekiah and that said that he trusted the Lord more than any of the other kings. Uh, it's never too late for you and I to start trusting God. And what may have started as a life that may have been one of doubts and fears, if we would just but turn to God and trust him, <coughs> he may say something like that about us and I think most of us know that uh, in the New Testament talks about coming before the Lord and him saying well done thou good and faithful servant to me this would be one of the, the things I would hope he would also say is that we trusted him more than most other churches more than most other people um, I hope you aspire to that. But that's what God thought of Hezekiah, not what other men thought of him. And so, as we're looking at this, 
Hezekiah in some ways is a living example to the nation around him, to the people that he's leading, that this is how they need to trust God. Where we left off was in verses 8 through 13. I'm going to reread those so that we can kind of just kind of pick up where we left off. There had been the initial confrontation, the call to surrender. And so Rabshakeh returns back to the king of Assyria warring against Libnath, for he had heard that he had departed from Lachish, and he heard concerning Tarhaka, king of Ethiopia, he has come forth to make war with thee. When he heard of it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, and so he, he leaves the vicinity of Jerusalem. He goes back to check on really the king of Assyria who's in all these battles. But he says, okay, let's send him one parting uh, message. And it would be like today if we know the Bible talks about Russia attacking Israel at some point. If Russia did that and they sent an encoded message to whoever the prime minister is of Israel saying, hey, we're busy right at the moment, but when we get it done with this other war, wherever it is, we're coming after you. Well, that's kind of the message that you see here. And so if you look at this, verse 10, it says, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, let not thy God in whom thy tr thou trusteth deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, thou hast heard what the kings, of, the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by destroying them utterly. And shalt thou be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them which my fathers have destroyed, as Gozan and Haran and Resef and the children of Eden, which were in Telazar? Where is the king of Hamath, and the king of Arphad, and the king of the city of Sarevaim, Hena, and Iba? And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up into the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed unto the Lord, saying, and we'll pause there. So what is the main attack of this letter? Nancy? God is lying to you, so don't believe him. Okay, God is lying to you. Don't believe him. Um, I use the word that the King James did, which says, don't let your God deceive you. Nancy put it real pointedly and accurately, saying, God's lying to you. And isn't that exactly what Satan did in the garden? The very first temptation, he comes to Eve and he, he basically... Through, through dispersions and deception is telling Eve, God's lying to you. If you take of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you'll be just like him. The other thing that that message contained was the idea that Jehovah, Yahweh, the name that the Jewish people would 
revere as the name of their God, the message says he's no different than the other gods. How big a difference is there between Jehovah and the other gods? <laughs> Nancy just does this. It's as far as you can get. Okay. One is a God that is alive and that is the creator of everything. And the other gods are just figments of man's imagination. They're dead. They can't see. They can't hear. And so there's a huge difference coming to Hezekiah and saying, your God can't defend you. And saying, we know this because look at all the other gods. And it's like, you aren't even in the same league. There's not even any way of comparing that. And they're going to find that out. And so what was Hezekiah's response to this letter? I mean, these are the two messages. God's deceiving you, and he isn't any different than any other gods. Bobby? Okay, he went right to God himself. He lays out the stuff, and so I would say the, the first thing we see in Hezekiah's response is he's kind of shocked and outraged by it, and he just says, I'm going to show God. I'm going to just lay it out right there and say, God, this is what they're saying about you, and it's not right. What else? Actually, let's, let's read... Hezekiah's prayer before the Lord because it also contains his response. And so starting in verse 16, this is his prayer. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel that dwelleth between the cherubs, cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth thou hast made heaven and earth. Incline thine ear, O Lord, and hear, and open thine eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their countries, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they have destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord, even thou only. So, we hear his prayer. What do you see Hezekiah's response to be based on what he said? We saw what he did. He went in and laid the message before the Lord. Now based on what he's prayed... What is his focus in responding to this? Bobby? I think he's truly 100% on God. Okay. I think Bobby's 100% right. He is trusting God and only God. He's not trusting himself. Yes, ma'am. Okay. And so... He wants the other nations to recognize Jehovah for who he really is. 
by the way, I'm not flashing all the other ones I have up there because the one Cindy just said is the last one on my bullets, but uh, that is just because I took them in order as I read them. Um, but there's some other things there that's on Hezekiah's mind, and everything that's been said is, is right on target. What else is his focus? Okay, he definitely wants God to listen to him. How does he acknowledge God as he is appealing to him for him to listen to him? Okay, the first thing he has, which is just before what Brenda brought up, and I'll put the one Brenda brought up next, is he recognizes God as the ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth. That's an important point to realize because here he is in conflict, conflict with Assyria, not by his choice, by theirs. And the first thing that he does is he acknowledges that God is sovereign over all the kingdoms, over all the rulers. What Sennacherib does, Sennacherib may think he controls his own destiny, but the truth of the matter is, is Sennacherib's in God's hands just as much as every other person. And God can deal with Sennacherib just as easily as he can deal with a flea. It's not that hard for God to deal with those that think they're high and mighty, just like those that consider themselves very lowly. And then Brenda brought up the second thing, is he recognizes that he is talking to the creator of heaven and earth. And he even acknowledges the fact that these other nations have gods, but they aren't gods at all. They're just wood and, and they aren't in stone and they aren't able to do anything to save that people. But this God, his God, Jehovah, he's not only the creator, he's not only the ruler, but he is able to save. And so that brings up the point that Cindy brought up, and that is the fact that Hezekiah wants the world to know that his God is different. His God is able to save them. He doesn't demand that God save him, but he wants the kingdoms of the earth knowing that Jehovah is the one true God. And so that's his response to the letter. Now, that then gets us to the next part of of the passage, and that's God's response. And I think it's kind of interesting. It was mentioned to me over the last month when you think back to the different kings, you think of the first king, King Saul, and just as there was a transition to King David, actually before there was that transition, there was this guy called Goliath that came along. Now the battle between David and Goliath, who was the conflict 
really between. Okay, it was really God and Goliath because Goliath was defying God. If you think about the message that we just read, who's being uh, attacked and whose reputation is being smeared in the letter, in the message? God's. Do you think God is happy with that message? I don't think so. So let's read what God says about it. Hezekiah has poured out his heart in prayer to the Lord. In verse 21, we pick up and we'll read to verse 29. It says, Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent unto Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Whereas thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord hath spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, hath despised thee and laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem shall shake her head at thee. Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? And against whom hast thou exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes on high, even against the Holy One of Israel? By thy servants hast thou reproached the Lord and hast said, By the multitude of my chariots am I come up to the heights of the mountains, to the sides of Lebanon, and I will cut down the tall cedars thereof and the choice firs thereof. And I will enter into the height of this border and the forest of his Carmel. I have digged and drunk water, and with the sole of my feet have, have I dried up the rivers of the besieged places. Hast thou not heard long ago how I have done it, and of ancient times that I formed it? Now I have brought it to pass that thou shouldest be to laid waste, defense cities in ruinous heaps. Therefore their inhabitants were small power, they were Dismayed and confounded, they were as the grass of the field, and as the green herb, and as the grass on the housetops, as the corn blasteth before it, <clears throat> before it be grown up. <clears throat> but I know thy abode, and thy going out, and thy coming in, and thy rage against me. Because thy rage against me, and thy torment is come to my ears, therefore I will put a hook in thy nose, and my bridle in thy lips, and I will turn thee back by the way which thou camest. We'll actually go ahead and read to the end of the chapter. That was God's response. And then he says, And this shall be a sign unto thee, he's speaking now to Hezekiah, Ye shall eat in this year such as the growth of itself, and the second year that which springeth of the same, and third year sow ye and reap, and the plant and plant vineyards and eat fruit thereof, and the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall take root downward and bear fruit upward, for out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord shall do this. Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall 
he return and shall not come into the city, saith the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And so we'll pause at verse 35. So what is God's response to this letter and to this attack that is impending, you know, pending on Jerusalem? Bobby? Okay, he knows everything. In fact, we read a whole bunch of details in there that he's describing about Assyria, knowing they're going in, they're going out, and they're coming in. Um, anything specific um, strike you in God's response to Assyria? I'll give you a hint. What does Assyria think of Jerusalem? Not much. So what is God saying Jerusalem's going to think about Assyria? <laughs> Not much either. In fact, the, the phrase that's used has to do with Zion being as a, as a girl that despises and mocks the Assyrians. And so the first thing that God highlights is the very people that Assyria thinks nothing of and, and just feels like they can tread all over is going to despise and mock them. Who does Sennacherib think he's talking to? Okay, he thinks he's just going king to king. But in reality, who's he picked to fight with? God himself. And so his message basically makes this no longer a Hezekiah versus Sennacherib, but rather Jehovah God versus Sennacherib. Who do you think is going to win that fight? Is there any contest? Not really. Okay. Okay, and so to God, it's, it's no different than dealing with a, an animal that you just put a hook in their nose or a, a bridle in their mouth or both. Um, what I thought was also interesting is God makes note of the fact that Sennacherib is doing some of his blasphemous reproach against God through his servants. He sends Rabshakeh to do this. But Rabshakeh is just mirroring that. And that's in verses 23 and 24 where he highlights that. In verse 24, it brings up the fact that the servants were reproaching the Lord, Sennacherib's servants. But it also brings up this multitude of chariots. Why do you think chariots are mentioned there? The military? Exactly, the military. If we were dealing with this today, what God would say to our nation, especially if we were going against his chosen people, Israel, 
as he would say, America, you think you can depend on your missiles and your tanks, your aircraft, your aircraft carriers, all of these different things. And he basically would say, how powerful is that compared to God's power? And that's really what he's bringing out here. He's saying chariots are nothing compared to God's power. Military might is nothing compared to God's power. We get the, the joy and benefit of living through hurricanes. How many have hunkered down during a hurricane in their house? Okay. How powerful are the hurricanes? Extremely. And if, if that isn't enough, they spawn tornadoes. And tornadoes can take even the strongest of houses and decimate them. And if you really think about that, that isn't even showing a fraction of God's power. He controls nature. He controls earthquakes, volcanoes, hurricanes, tornadoes. And I honestly believe that much of our natural disasters, as they're called nowadays, is God's attempt to get man's attention. You look at our world, it is racing headlong toward the seven-year tribulation time where there's nothing but dominantly rebellion against God. And the whole time I see all of these different disasters as God's way of saying, wake up. You're going and fighting against your creator. Is that really what you want to do? Wouldn't it be better to run to your creator for refuge instead of fight against him? Sennacherib is obviously not going to run to Jehovah, but Hezekiah does. And God basically says, your chariots, your military power, it's nothing. And then Kurt already mentioned the fact that he's going to turn them back. Is Assyria ever going to shoot an arrow in Jerusalem? Are they going to bring their battering rams and stuff to the gates of Jerusalem? Nope. Bill, you have something. Yeah. Uh, is he telling them uh, what they did in the past by uh, attacking the northern tribes and, and Judah and taking those cities? that uh, he was using them for that purpose? God is, is weaving several different themes in there. Um, part of it is he's telling the Assyrians, you were allowed to do some of the, allowed to have some of the victories that you had because God let you. And you're, you're right, the northern kingdom, he used Assyria really to um, chasten and punish uh, them for their idolatry. I mean, that's showing the, the power of God himself. Oh, yeah. To them, 
that you're doing it just because I let you do it. Exactly. But the nations that attack other nations, they don't view it that way. But we see God's hand in it where he allows it to happen. And it shows his power to bring it about or to to hold it back. Yes, I agree. This is for the point there. I was just reading verse 26. Had you not heard that I determined it long ago? God has brought these things about. He's telling the nephew that he met that I did this. I planned it, and I will bring it to pass. Exactly. It's God's work, not his. And the truth be told, it is so easy for all of us to fall into the trap of thinking that human accomplishment is significant. Um, we all do it. Now, the good news is, is for most Christians, it's a blend. There's part of us that's trusting God, but then there's part of us that feels we have to have human accomplishment. And there is a responsibility that we have, but it's a responsibility to glorify God, not to accomplish all of these heroic things. Um, our goal needs to be to point to Jesus. And unfortunately, we don't do that the best. We like to have human accomplishment. And like Kurt read, God's saying to Sennacherib, I've done all this, and you can't do anything without me. And it's good for us to remember that, and Hezekiah gets it. He gets it. And that's why he's trusting God, is he sees God's hand in this, and he's trusting God for the outcome. Now, God doesn't leave them high and dry in verse 30, he tells them there's going to be a sign. And so he, he's made all these claims, and the, the final claim was he's going to put, turn back Assyria. He's going to take care of them. He's going to do it for his sake and his servant David's. And we read those verses, verses 30 through 36 or 35. And when we read those, he told them that he's going to give them a sign. What is the sign that God is going to give Jerusalem? Exactly. So if you if you think about what's going on here in, in typical warfare in that time, when Sennacherib's coming against Jerusalem, there's probably some degree of a siege where they're not free to go out and do their normal planting, their normal stuff. And so God's basically telling them, not only will they not plant the first year, but then later they will plant, they will harvest, and they'll eat the food from the land. And so it's not like he's making this promise and he's saying, 
but you're going to end up being in captivity eating in a foreign country. He's saying you're going to stay right there and you're going to eat from the land, you're going to plant in the land, you're going to harvest from the land. Everything is going to be there. The other thing that I felt was a sign was Sennacherib isn't even going to get close to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, but that's like saying this army that's just a few miles away isn't going to be allowed to march any closer. And you kind of sit there and you say, well, uh, it's not like cartoons where there's this invisible force shield that's going to keep them out. But God can keep them out. And it's not a make-believe cartoon. It's God putting things on their heart and mind. But also, uh, I think most of us remember uh, the prophet Balaam and his donkey saw the angel and he didn't. We don't get the benefit of seeing the angelic beings typically, but yet they are very real. And if God says their army isn't going to get any closer, it's not going to get any closer. And so he gives them that sign. The other thing they mentions, and we, we already mentioned this, is they aren't going to shoot arrows. They aren't going to have battering rams. They aren't going to have any of their implements of war, shields or anything else. So there's going to be no weapons coming against Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, but I try to sometimes put myself in Hezekiah's shoes. You've heard all the nasty things Assyria has done. They have decimated the northern kingdom. And you're the king of the southern kingdom if you're going to put yourself in Hezekiah's shoes. And you're going to be responsible for what happens to people in Jerusalem and in the southern kingdom. Most of us, I think, would look out the window and see the big army of Assyria and it would strike fear to our heart. Hezekiah, and I think this is why God's assessment of him was he trusted God more than the other kings. The other kings didn't face the same magnitude of potential destruction and, and all the horrors of war like Hezekiah did. And in the face of all of that, he basically puts his trust in God. And this is detailing all of that. The other thing that's kind of interesting is in God's response, he says, I'm going to do all this because the people in Jerusalem are really good people, right? No, not exactly. He's going to do it because of his own sake and David's sake. He made promises to David 
And so God's reputation is what is on the line. And Hezekiah is showing they trust God, but God's response is beyond Hezekiah. It's not that Hezekiah earned it. It's not that he deserved it. And if you think about that for a little bit, when we come to God in prayer, is he obligated to answer our prayers because we're good? No, quite the opposite. Um, many times if we really are honest with ourselves and when we pray, we would say, God, there's nothing I've done that deserves you answering this prayer. Would you please do thus and such? When we pray for the lost, there's nothing they've done that deserves salvation. There's nothing we did that we deserved God's gift of salvation and his forgiveness. We can't really go to him and say, God, would you save this person on my behalf? Because there's nothing on my behalf that's worthy of him answering that prayer. But we can go to him and say, because of your mercy and grace, would you show yourself powerful and save this person? Would you make them a trophy of your grace? It's all based on what God's character is that he answers our prayer. And that's what we see here. It's for his own sake. It's for his reputation. And that's how we really need to pray more often is God, for your reputation, would you please do this? Um, whether he saves us from sickness or not is not near as important as him saving the lost. And as we read verses about what God desires, we find it's not his end that's the problem. It's our end. And so we need to pray that God would take down the false ideas, the false hopes that we and also those that we love so often hold. And so here he tells Hezekiah through Isaiah that he's going to defend the city. He's going to protect the city. Verse 36, all of a sudden the scenery changes it goes from Isaiah telling Hezekiah, thus saith the Lord, to here's what happens. Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote the camp of the Assyrians, and hundred and fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, Nishrach, his God, that Adramelech, I'm going to let someone else read these big names, and Shirazer, his son, smote him with a sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia and Ishhadon, 
his son reigned in his set in his stead. Well, you notice here a serious defeat. How big an army did it take to go against Assyria? One angel. One angel kills 185,000 people in one night. Now you think about that for a minute. You know, yeah, we have chemical weapons and all sorts of craziness nowadays, but in that time period, to kill 185,000 people in that short of time, they didn't have armies that could do that. They didn't have weapons that could do that. And so we see a miraculous, supernatural event where God sends an angel. Um, he didn't send an army of angels. He sent one angel. And that one angel kills all of those people all at once. Nancy? And I noticed that it doesn't mention that the angel wielded a weapon of any kind. He yeah. just smote them. There's no hint of him having any kind of weapon. It just says the angel killed him. And then the 185,000 were corpses in the morning. If you think about the second coming of Jesus, it talks about his tongue being as a sword that smites the, the nations. I honestly believe that's kind of a, a picture of his words being spoken. And as his words are spoken, it happens. Um, the best way I know to illustrate that is you remember when Lazarus died, Jesus wept and he went there and then he said, Lazarus, come forth. Um, first time I ever thought about one preacher said if he would have just said, come forth, then the whole graveyard would have come forth. Um, and I think that's true. And I think when Jesus comes back, there's not really a battle that those following him are having to fight because he will simply speak the word and the armies will be destroyed the people will be you know the the rebellious armies of people will be destroyed just simply by his word um interesting here go ahead There's no way you could explain that number of dead except supernatural. They couldn't say, oh, well, they came out of Jerusalem and they killed it. Couldn't, couldn't explain it like that. Yeah, there's no human way to answer how did you kill that many people. And, and oh, by the way, the fact that happened so quickly rules out, oh, they got a disease, you know, because mankind will find every excuse in the book to deny God's power if we can if we can get away with it. But here it's short, it's massive numbers of people. Interestingly enough, God puts it on Sennacherib's heart that he's gonna go home. I don't know about you, but if I were in his shoes. I would be basically thinking, this wasn't good. Why did I challenge 
the God of Israel because I just lost 185,000 men in one night and there's no human explanation for why. Now, I think it's also interesting, too. Sennacherib goes home. Does he escape? Not at all. He may have felt safe. He didn't come near Jerusalem because he didn't want to die. But he's worshiping in his own pagan temple back in Assyria and his own sons kill him. When God decrees judgment, there's no escape. There may be hope for mercy if we run to him and appeal to him, but there's no getting away. You've heard probably the expression, you can run, but you can't hide. You can't even run from God. No matter where you go, you cannot get away from our Creator, Jehovah, God of Israel, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the Messiah. You cannot escape that judgment. And so here, Hezekiah, in, verse, in chapters 36 and 37, he is a role model for the nation. He's a role model, really, for all the other kings before and after him on what it means to trust God. And so Isaiah has been teaching them for chapter after chapter, don't trust man, don't trust these nations, don't go in allegiance with them. Trust God, trust God. And so today I hope as we see Hezekiah model that, we see God's response because the blasphemous remarks were slandering him. In the end, though, the purpose of all of it is to encourage us, encourage Israel in that time, us today, trust God. The proverb says, you know, that he that puts his trust in man is not wise, but he that trusts God is definitely wise and will not be disappointed because God is always true to his word. And so... As we face some uncertainty as a church, as we may face problems in our life, we need to remember, trust God. And I would encourage you to memorize Isaiah 26.3. I think it is one of the most comforting verses when you go through some of the storms of life. Next week we're going to pick up, and I do plan to be here next week now on vacation, so, Kurt, I think I got it right this week. Um, next week, we're going to look at Hezekiah, and he's going to show us that he trusts God even when he had a life-threatening sickness. And I want you to think about it. Some of us have had the doctor tell us we have cancer. And most people, when they hear the word cancer, that's like a death sentence. Think about Hezekiah's plight in that day and age. What he was told was the equivalent of us being told we have cancer today. 
And so kind of think about that passage in that light. Next week we'll talk about it. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, again we give thanks to you for your love for us. Father, we're thankful that you're a merciful and loving God and that you give us much better than we deserve. And that's for your sake and for your glory that you do much of what you do because we don't deserve it. And Father, as we come into this time of worship, we pray that our hearts would be stilled, our mind would be focused on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we exalt and honor him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.